Part Two, Chapter One of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part Two, Chapter One. Lawrence. Of some of the events that I am now about to relate. It is obvious that I could not have been an eyewitness, and yet, looking back from the strange isolation that is now my world, I find it incredibly difficult to realize what I saw, and what I did not. Was I with Nina and Vera on that Tuesday night, when they stood face to face with one another for the first time? Was I with Markovitch during his walk through that marvelous new world, that he seemed himself to have created? I know that I shared none of these things, and yet it seems to me that I was at the heart of them all. I may have been told many things by the actors in those events. I may not. I cannot now, in retrospect, see any of it, save as my own personal experience, and as my own personal experience, I must relate it. But as I have already said at the beginning of this book, no one is compelled to believe either my tale or my interpretation. Every man would, I suppose, like to tell his story in the manner of some other man. I can conceive the events of this part of my narration being interpreted in the spirit of the wildest farce, of the genteelest comedy, of the most humorous satire. Other men, other gifts. I am a dull and pompous fellow, as Semyonov often tells me, and I hope that I never allowed him to see how deeply I felt the truth of his words. Meanwhile. I will begin with a small adventure of Henry Bowen's. Apparently, one evening soon after Nina's party, he found himself about half past ten in the evening, lonely and unhappy, walking down the Nevsky. Gay and happy crowds wandered by him, brushing him aside, refusing to look at him, showing, in fact, no kind of interest in his existence. He was suddenly frightened. The distances seemed terrific. And the Nevsky was so hard and bright and shining, that it had no use at all for any lonely young man. He decided suddenly that he would go and see me. He found an Izvostyk, but when they reached the Ekaterinovsky Canal, the surly coachman refused to drive further, saying that his horse had gone lame, and that this was as far as he had bargained to go. Henry was forced to leave the cab, and then found himself outside the little people's cinema, where once he had been with Vera and myself. He knew that my rooms were not far away, and he started off beside the white and silent canal, wondering why he had come, and wishing he were back in bed. There was still a great deal of the baby in Henry, and ghosts and giants and scaly-headed monsters were not incredibilities to his young imagination. As he left the main thoroughfare and turned down past the widening docks, he suddenly knew that he was terrified. There had been stories of wild attacks on rich strangers, sandbagging and the rest, often enough, but it was not of that kind of thing that he was afraid. He told me afterwards that he expected to see long, thick, crawling creatures creeping towards him over the ice. He continually turned round to see whether someone were following him. When he crossed the tumble-down bridge that led to my island, 
It seemed that he was absolutely alone in the whole world. The masts of the ships, dim through the cold mist, were like tangled spider's webs. A strange, hard red moon peered over the towers and chimneys of the distant dockyard. The ice was limitless, and of a dirty grey pallor, with black shadows streaking it. My island must have looked desolate enough, with its dirty snow heaps, old boards and scrap iron, and tumble-down cottages. Again, as on his first arrival in Petrograd, Henry was faced by the solemn fact that events are so often romantic in retrospect, but grimly realistic in experience. He reached my lodging and found the door open. He climbed the dark, rickety stairs and entered my sitting-room. The blinds were not drawn, and the red moon peered through onto the grey shadows that the ice beyond always flung. The stove was not burning. The room was cold and deserted. Henry called my name, and there was no answer. He went into my bedroom, and there was no one there. He came back and stood there, listening. He could hear the creaking of some bar beyond the window, and the melancholy whistle of a distant train. He was held there as though spellbound. Suddenly he thought that he heard someone climbing the stairs. He gave a cry, and that was answered by a movement so close to him that it was almost at his elbow. "'Who's there?' he cried. He saw a shadow pass between the moon and himself. In a panic of terror he cried out, and at the same time struck a match. Someone came towards him, and he saw that it was Markovitch. He was so relieved to find that it was a friend that he did not stop to wonder what Markovitch should be doing hiding in my room. It afterwards struck him that Markovitch looked odd, like a kind of conspirator in an old shabby shuba with the collar turned up. He looked jolly ill and dirty, as though he hadn't slept or washed. He didn't seem a bit surprised at seeing me there, and I think he scarcely realised that it was me. He was thinking of something else, so hard, that he couldn't take me in. "'Oh, born,' he said in a confused way. "'Hello, Nikolai Leontovich,' Bowen said, trying to be unconcerned. "'What are you doing here?' "'I came to see Ivan Andreevich,' he said. "'Wasn't here. I was going to write to him.' Bowen then lit a candle, and discovered that the place was in a very considerable mess. Someone had been sifting my desk, and papers and letters were lying about the floor. The drawers of my table were open, and one chair was overturned. Markovitch stood back near the window, looking at Bowen suspiciously. They must have been a curious couple for such a position. There was an awkward pause, and then Bowen, trying to speak easily, said, "'Well, it seems that Derwood isn't coming. He's out dining somewhere, I expect.' "'Probably,' said Markovitch dryly. "'There was another pause. "'Then Markovitch broke out with, "'I suppose you think I've been here trying to steal something?' "'Oh, no! Oh, no, no!' stammered Bowen. "'But I have,' said Markovitch. "'You can look round and see. "'There it is on every side of you. "'I've been trying to find a letter.' "'Oh, yes,' said Bowen nervously. "'Well,' "'That seems to you terrible,' went on Markovitch, growing ever fiercer. "'Of course it seems to you perfect, Englishman, a dreadful thing. "'But why heed it? 
You all do things just as bad, only you are hypocrites. Oh, yes, certainly, said Bowen. And now, said Markovitch with a snarl, I'm sure you will not think me a proper person for you to lodge with any longer. And you will be right. I am not a proper person. I have no sense of decency, thank God, and no Russian has any sense of decency, and that is why we are beaten and despised by the whole world, and yet are finer than them all. So you'd better not lodge with us any more. But of course, said Bowen, disliking more and more this uncomfortable scene, of course I shall continue to stay with you. You are my friends, and one doesn't mind what one's friends do. One's friends are one's friends. Suddenly then, Markovitch jerked himself forward. Just as though, Bowen afterwards described it to me, he had shot himself out of a catapult. Tell me, he said, is your English friend in love with my wife? What Bowen wanted to do then was to run out of the room, down the dark stairs, and away as fast as his legs would carry him. He had not been in Russia so long that he had lost his English dislike of scenes, and he was seriously afraid that Markovitch was, as he put it, bang off his head. But at this critical moment he remembered, it seems, my injunction to him. Be kind to Markovitch, to make a friend of him. That had always seemed to him before impossible enough, but now, at the very moment when Markovitch was at his queerest, he was also at his most pathetic, looking there in the mist and shadows, too untidy and dirty and miserable to be really alarming. Henry then took courage. "'That's all nonsense, Markovitch,' he said. "'I suppose by your English friend you mean Lawrence.' He thinks the world of your wife, of course, as we all do, but he's not the fellow to be in love. I don't suppose he's ever been really in love with a woman in his life. He's a kindly, good-hearted chap, Lawrence, and he wouldn't do harm to a fly. Markovitch peered into Bowen's face. What did you come here for, any of you? he asked. What's Russia overrun with foreigners for? We'll clear the lot of you out, all of you. Then he broke off, with a pathetic little gesture, his hand up to his head. But I don't know what I am saying. I don't mean it, really. Only things are so difficult, and they slip away from one so. I love Russia, and I love my wife, Mr. Bowen, and they've both left me. But you aren't interested in that. Why should you be? Only remember, when you're inclined to laugh at me, that I'm like a man in a cockle-shell boat, and it isn't my fault. I was put in it. But I'm never inclined to laugh, said Bowen eagerly. I may be young and, and, and only an Englishman, but I shouldn't wonder if I don't understand better than you think. You try and see. I'll tell you another thing, Nikolai Leontovich. I loved your wife myself, loved her madly, and she was so good to me and so far above me that I saw that it was like loving one of the angels. That's what we all feel, Nikolai Leontovich, so that you needn't have any fear. She's too far above us all, and I only want to be your friend and hers and to help you in any way I can. I can see Bowen saying this, very sincere, his cheeks flushed, eager. Markovitch held out both his hands. You're right! he cried. She's above us all. 
It's true that she's an angel, and we are all her servants. You have helped me by saying what you have, and I won't forget it. You are right. I am wasting my time with ridiculous suspicions when I ought to be working. Concentration, that's what I want, and perhaps you will give it me. He suddenly came forward and kissed Bowen on both cheeks. He smelt, Bowen thought, of vodka. Bowen didn't like the embrace, of course, but he accepted it gracefully. Now we'll go away, said Markovitch. We ought to put things straight, said Bowen. No, I shall leave things as they are, said Markovitch, so that he shall see exactly what I've done. I'll write a note. He scribbled a note to me in pencil. I have it still. It ran, Dear Ivan Andreevich, I looked for a letter from my wife to you. In doing so, I was, I suppose, contemptible. But no matter. At least you see me as I am. I clasp your hand, N. Markovitch. They went away together. End of chapter 2